This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, with China's latest escalation and its dispute with Canada, is a time for us to finally start fighting back. Five new groups have been added to Canada's list of banned terrorist organizations, including, for the first time, two neo-Nazi groups. Also, a Lethbridge police officer won't be charged for repeatedly running over an injured deer. Plus, an in-depth look at the science and controversy surrounding diet soda. So it would appear as though things have now escalated between Canada and China. It certainly looks as though China is ramping up the pressure on Canada by banning all Canadian meat imports, or at least suspending all Canadian meat imports. So is that what this is? Is this more of the pressure from the Chinese government to try to convince Canada to cave and release Huawei chief financial officer Meng Wanzhou? Or is there more going on here? Is trying to have a, a legitimate concern with regard to possibly forged paperwork coming from at least one Canadian company. International Trade Diversification Minister Jim Carr says at this point, they're not convinced that the meat import suspension is linked to the uh, arrest of Meng Wanzhou. It says officials are investigating China's claim, but in the meantime... Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale says they'll continue to work with and defend the industry. We know whether it's on the plant side or the animal side that uh, Canadian agriculture uh, is uh, uh, the best and the cleanest and the strongest and the safest in the world. Uh, And we take anything that detracts from that reputation uh, very seriously. Meanwhile, Alberta's Agriculture Minister Devin Drieschen Uh, says this all sounds like an excuse on China's part. This, unfortunately, isn't so much of a ractopamine as as an issue with with China trying to find find ways to to block our our market. Who is David Aiken this morning, a Global News Chief Political Correspondent, speaking with the Morning News, on what led up to this and, and where maybe there is some legitimate concern on China's part? It is a really strange story because uh, it looks like there is something at the root here, a legitimate uh, concern uh, from both Canadian and uh, Chinese officials. And what happened was the Chinese right now, because of these tensions, are basically inspecting every single shipment of pork that comes from Canada. It sort of slows things down. You know, this is just they're sending a signal. But in inspecting one shipment that came from a Montreal-area packing plant, they found uh, evidence of ractopamine. And uh, pig farmers, uh, cattle farmers will know this, uh, this particular additive. It's added into the meal that uh, animals are fed as they're finishing, sort of gets them more muscular. And this is perfectly legal, this particular um, additive in Canada, the U.S. and Mexico. It's illegal in the European Union, Russia, and China. So China says to Canada, hey, we found this uh, additive that you shouldn't be shipping. What's going on? 
And the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, the CFIA, then starts an investigation, and it was the CFIA that finds evidence of fraudulent veterinary certificates attached to port shipments coming from this Montreal-area packing plant. The CFIA calls in the RCMP. They want to know what's going on, and they tell the Chinese, here's what we found. Here's what the Chinese have done, though. That, you know, is this an overreaction? They're now saying, right, this is evidence that you're, there's a big safety loophole in the entire Canadian food safety system, and China has asked Canada to suspend all certificates for exports of beef and pork. And this is happening, just to remind folks, in China right now, they've got issues with African swine fever running rampant through their pork uh, you call pork herds or pork, you know, they're, they're pork farms. <laughs> it's a big problem. And uh, and so they're having trouble producing enough pork, the Chinese, for their own domestic market. And here they're ready to essentially shut down any shipments from Canada. If there's any good news, there's hints yesterday as we were talking to government officials and parsing the Chinese statements. This could be temporary if we get this sorted out. Okay, there's an overview from our own David Aiken. It certainly feels, though. Like this is all part of the same situation. It seems implausible to me that this is not more pressure from the Chinese or that somehow this is completely and totally disconnected from the Huawei situation. Uh, Matt Gurney has an interesting piece in the National Post today that if we're in a fight with China, maybe it's about time that we start acting like it. Joining us on the line is National Post columnist Matt Gurney. Matt, thanks for joining us. You're welcome to the program. Good to be here. I mean, first of all, is is this a fight? Is it possible maybe that, that China has some legitimate point on, on this meat thing, or is it just too coincidental given, the, given everything else that's been going on? You know what? I mean, as I note in the column, yeah, it's conceivable. Uh, I mean, what China is specifically saying, Rob, is that they were looking at Canadian pork in particular that had been imported, and they found that there was some hormone or preservative or something that's permitted in Canada but not permitted in China. And they found some of that uh, in the meat, and that's why they have begun an investigation, and the investigations turned up paperwork anomalies, and so they're just shutting down all meat imports until they can get to the bottom of it. That's their official story. I don't know. Could be true. Could be true in part. Could be true in whole. But like I say in the column, it has to be viewed in the entire context of everything else they're doing, of arresting our citizens on spurious charges, of taking a guy who'd already been convicted and sentenced, a Canadian in China, for drug trafficking, and resentencing him to death, of cracking down and banning our canola. So you have to view it all in that context, and it gets really hard to give them the benefit of the doubt. Well, especially with all of this going on, we've also got now this week a foreign ministry spokesman uh, who told reporters that uh, Canada needs to take China's concerns seriously. They need to release Meng Wanzhou, this uh, high-ranking executive at Huawei. So as, as China's reminding us that that's what they're mad about, it, it seems pretty likely that this all kind of fits into that. Yeah, look, I, I have no doubt uh, about what's happening here, and I, I don't think Canadians should either. Again, it's conceivable that maybe some meat did have some preservative or something in it. But I think, again, when you step back and look at the totality of what's been happening here, I think the true picture emerges, and it's that China is applying uh, pressure on us, economic, political, and also, I would argue, humanitarian, with the, the case of the Canadians who've been detained in China. And I think their own messaging on this uh, is... Well, let's just put it this way. If the 
total ban on Canadian meat imports is truly a health and safety issue, then the timing is, if nothing else, suspiciously convenient for Beijing. I'd say so. Uh, now, in the meantime, it feels as though, uh, from from our perspective, or at least the official Canadian perspective, is we, we don't want to cave. We don't want to ratchet up the pressure. We're trying to navigate this this status quo, an approach that, that really doesn't seem to be working. Does that leave us with the choice, then, Matt, of either waving the white flag, caving, releasing Meng Wanzhou, as some have actually argued for, or ratcheting up the pressure ourselves? Well, yeah. Funny, Rob, when you say that some have actually argued for that, you're essentially referring to our recently uh, retired uh, ambassador to China, uh, who was, uh, shall we say, perhaps a little bit more China's ambassador to us than the other way around. Yeah, Yeah, look, we, we have effectively three options here, and I'm I'm oversimplifying this a little bit, but I mean, in general terms, we can capitulate and find some legal excuse to let uh, Miss Meng go, and then hopefully, in due time, China forgives us, and we can, you know, beg their forgiveness and go back to something like normal. We can do what I'm saying we do in the column and escalate and start fighting back economically against China, and we can get to that in a minute. Or we can do basically what we're doing now, which is what you've already identified, is this weird, awkward, well, we're not capitulating, but we're also not really doing anything to push back because we're hopeful we can diffuse the situation. You know, it was in my column, Rob, I didn't even touch on China's humanitarian record at home. Mm-hmm. But it's worth recalling just for a minute that the Canadian strategy right now seems to be that we're hoping that we can get to a positive outcome by not offending the people who've locked up a million people in concentration camps because of their religion. So you tell me how you think the soft power of a Canadian middle echelon diplomacy is going to work against a regime that would do something like that. Well, I think it's it's an important point. You also look at what's happening in Hong Kong. I mean, do we even putting aside this whole business uh, with with Meng Wanzhou and these Canadians and, and all of it, just based on those two situations, what's going on with Muslims in in China? What's going on with the protesters in Hong Kong? Do we bite our tongue uh, or do we do we speak up about this? And we've always tried to walk that that fine line when it comes to China. That recognizing, sure, they're a global power. We got to do business with them. But sometimes we got to call them out. But I think we, we've often been too hesitant to do that. Yeah, and I think Canada has been, uh, you know, for all our talk about being a beacon of human rights and the world needs more Canada, and blah, blah, blah. For decades, we have been a laggard in calling China out for some of its atrocities. And co- countries smaller than us have taken a much harder line. New Zealand and Australia, both smaller than us, even combined, have taken a harder line on China. And they've already taken some of the steps I call for in my column. What the hell is Canada waiting for? Well, one place to start, and it's a decision we're going to have to make eventually anyway, is uh, whether or not we're going to allow Huawei to be a part of building our, our 5G infrastructure. I mean, yeah. the Americans seem to have pre- taken a pretty clear line on this. Um, it's it's hard to see how we can say yes if the Americans are saying no. But, you know, given what China's been up to lately, maybe we definitely need to say no. Yeah, I mean, in, in the column, Rob, basically I say that there's two things that Canadians should do right now. And it's not to rule out maybe needing to do more later. But the first thing that we, we should do is we should stop buying Huawei products. 
and I were counting the column out just a couple of days ago. My wife's cell phone was busted. Uh, we went into our local uh, telecom provider store, a wireless provider, to go shopping for a new phone for her. And the moment we walked through the door, like it was placed there deliberately. There's a huge Huawei display with glossy posters and a TV showing ads and, you know, beautiful tablets and phones all arrayed. You had to walk around it to get into the rest of the store. So it was there, obviously, to grab your attention immediately. And this was before the, the latest developments this week. But I remember thinking to myself, what the hell is a Canadian company doing so prominently displaying the merchandise of a country that is actively waging economic warfare on us, that is literally disappearing our citizens into cells because they don't like our political policies. What are we doing? And what would any Canadian today be doing actually buying one of those tablets or phones? So that's the first thing I said. It's time to hit them where it hurts, hit them in the pocketbook. A boycott of Huawei products, it's a symbolic measure. I acknowledge that, mm-hmm. but it's a meaningful one, and it's something we can all do starting right now, the other thing is the one that you've alluded to already, which is that you know Canada is modernizing our telecommunications grid. As I note in the column, we are completely dependent on the telecommunications grid for basically everything from national defense all the way down to watching Netflix. Everything we do relies on resilient and secure telecommunications. A lot of our allies, the United States, Japan, Australia, have said that they're not going to allow Huawei technology into their networks because of concerns that China could use it to infiltrate the networks. I think that is a completely legitimate concern, and we should ban Huawei from our networks on those grounds alone. The problem is, though, we've been hesitant to do it, and I think probably because we are basically in typical Canadian fashion. We want to do the right thing, but we don't want to do the right thing if the Americans do it first. We want to be independent, and we don't want to be seen just doing what Washington does. But this is a great opportunity to do the right thing for the big reason of national security and the admittedly petty and minor reason of giving China the bird. It's time for us to say, you know what, we're banning Huawei from our networks until such time, well, hey, maybe forever, but at least until such time that the Chinese are willing to play nice again. Well, the column is up at nationalpost.com. Matt, great talking to you as always. Thanks for making some time for us here. Anytime. There you go. That is Matt Gurney, columnist editor of the National Post, uh, nationalpost.com. This is significant, I think, in the minds of many long overdue. As you probably know, Canada maintains a list uh, of organizations that are essentially then banned terrorist organizations. So there's some legal significance to being on this list. But a notable absence up until now has been far right and neo-Nazi groups. That has now changed. Uh, Stuart Bell with Global News has the scoop today. The government has, for the first time, placed right-wing extremist groups on its list of outlawed terrorist organizations, adding the names of Blood and Honor and Combat 18. According to the government's, uh, or announced in the government's Canada Gazette, the action came after the Canadian Security Intelligence Service said in a report last Friday that it increased its posture on these groups. Now, there's a Calgary connection here as well. People might know the name Kyle McKee. Was one of the founders of the group Aryan Guard uh, that was linked to some violent incidents in Calgary. He used to have a very high-profile annual rally in our city. Kyle McKee is the founder, the leader uh, of Blood and Honor. 
In fact, you might recall there was a controversy in September of 2017 uh, when he managed to get close enough to the prime minister to get the prime minister's autograph. The prime minister ended up inadvertently signing a Nazi flag. Well, joining us uh, for some analysis of this decision, very pleased to welcome to the program Leah West, the former counsel with the Department of Justice, the National Security Litigation and Advisory Group. As of next month, joins the uh, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University faculty as a lecturer in national security and intelligence. Leah, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rob. Uh, so for your perspective, then, is, is this a, a pretty significant move by the government? I think it is, and I think, as you mentioned at the outset, uh, long overdue. Um, we've seen the rise uh, in the threat um, per- from right-wing extremism in this country over the last several years, um, and this is part of recognizing that uh, right-wing extremism can uh, lead to terrorist activity or can facilitate terrorist activity, just as other religious, political, or um, um, other motivated ideologies mm-hmm. uh there, there is some uh, some legal significance to being on this list then how, how might it change how we deal with these groups so the first thing really is that there's a significant impact in terms of these groups financial and property within canada um so their assets if they had assets in canada that was identifiable would be seized and could be uh, their property could be forfeited it also puts an owner own, uh, some um, responsibility on the private sector, especially in the banking sector, to be on the lookout and to monitor the, the financial transactions of members of these groups and report on them if they're suspicious or could be linked to terrorism. So it puts, um, puts responsibility on the private sector. Um, the other thing it does is it kind of it, uh, taps thesis. Um, CSIS, as you mentioned, um, has highlighted the growing um, risk of violent extremism from the right. But CSIS's mandate is the investigation and, to an extent, the disruption of terrorism. It doesn't have a mandate to simply investigate ordinary crimes of violence or hatred. So by um, making right-wing extremist groups terrorist groups, it, it it triggers CSIS's responsibility in this realm and gives both law enforcement and CSIS the capacity to use different tools in their toolbox to defend against this threat. Yeah, and I think that's significant. Uh, typically, then, it's probably fallen to, to the RCMP or maybe even to local police services to, to have to investigate these groups, whether they have a local chapter, what their members might be up to. This, this almost better coordinates those efforts, then. Right, and it rises it to kind of the national priority level. The RCMP has uh, insets, which are, you know, there's one list, there's one in Calgary and one in Edmonton. They have a responsibility for national policing and national security policing. And this now kind of rises the actions of these groups up to that level and takes it away from the sphere of what we might call a hate crime. Now, it should be noted, because even though people are referring to these as two groups, I think they're essentially one and the same. The Combat 18 is essentially then the, the armed branch of, of Blood and Honor? Correct. That's how they're listed. And, and this isn't really all that unusual. If you look at the terrorist entity list, there's often groups, that, and their splinter groups are listed separately, even though the thing that got them on the list in the first place is one and the same. And there's a really practical reason for this. One, um, if those groups were to splinter off, 
from one another between review periods, both of them still get covered. So if you had, if the Combat 18 were to decide to form their own group separate from Blood and Honor, um, they would still be captured under the terrorist entity list until the review period um, was concluded again, which under C-59 was actually now going to happen instead of every two years, every five years. So this, you know, keeps these groups from falling in the, into the cracks if they splinter. The other important thing is that certain individuals who belong to these groups may affiliate with one but not the other. So somebody may say, I am a strong Combat 18 member, but they don't necessarily um, consider themselves a member of Blood and Honor. This would allow them to be uh, captured um, nonetheless. Okay, so that's significant. In terms of the threshold for being on this list, I mean, obviously there, there would be a threshold. Uh, clearly this, this group passes the test, but what, what is it that, that authorities are, are looking at in terms of classifying a group this way? So basically, uh, what is required is that the Minister of Public Safety makes a recommendation to the Governor and Council, so basically Cabinet, the Executive, and says that we have reasonable grounds to believe that this entity has normally carried out or attempted to carry out a terrorist activity, or they've normally acted on behalf of a terrorist group. So crucial to that is what the definition is of terrorist activity, um, and that's found within the Criminal Code. And there's kind of two ways to get to capture terrorist activity, there's an enumerated list of actions like hijacking an airplane, like automatically that, that mm-hmm. qualifies as terrorist activity. The other one is where you, you look at an action and you say, does the elements of this offense constitute terrorism? So are they intentionally engaging in a, a violent action committed for a political, religious, ideological purpose? and with the intention of intimidating the public. So if you have all those three things, then you get terrorist activity. And so when you're doing a listing, like in this case, the actual conduct that got Blood and Honor listed didn't happen in Canada. Um, So you have to look at their actions abroad, and it's not good enough for another country to say this action was terrorist. We have to look at our own law and see whether that action abroad would constitute terrorist activity here in Canada. Right. And, if and, that's yeah. the case, yeah, then they can be listed. Right, and there are a number of groups that are listed on this website that... Um same thing. They, they haven't committed acts of, of terrorism in Canada, but certainly have committed terrorist acts in other countries. Right. And the, and the key there is that they have to be terrorist activity by our definition. Right. It can't be some other government's definition or international organizations of definition to be listed here in Canada. All right. So significant move today and, and possibly then more, more to come in the future. Do you anticipate perhaps other groups being added to this list? I think so. And I hope that as necessary, they are added. I mean, if you look at this, the actual crimes that got this group on the list occurred in 2012. So um, it's a long time coming, and I hope to see other um, other groups like this listed so that Canadian agencies can use all the tools in the tool belt they have to eliminate the threat to Canadians posed by these groups. Yeah, indeed. Uh, Lee, appreciate the insight. Thanks for making some time for us here today. No problem. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. There's Leah West, uh, former counsel with the Department of Justice, as of next month, joining the faculty of the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, uh, specializing in areas of national security and intelligence. Uh, So to her, this makes sense. It's logical, probably long overdue. I think there was a lot of concern about this group. In fact, there was a murder in Germany earlier this month. A pro-refugee politician was murdered. The suspect uh, has been linked, reportedly, to the group Combat 18. Now, the reference on the list, uh, the banned organization list, 
says Blood and Honor is an international neo-Nazi network whose ideology is derived from the National Socialist Doctrine of Nazi Germany. Through their armed branch, Combat 18, the group has carried out violent acts, including murders and bombings. Blood and Honor was founded in the UK in 1987, grew during the 1990s, establishing branches throughout Europe by the end of the decade. Blood and Honor attacks have occurred in North America and in several EU member states. In January 2012, four Blood and Honor members in Tampa, Florida, were convicted of the 1998 murder of two homeless men who were killed because the group considered them inferior. February of 2012, members of Blood and Honor and CA team, Combat 18, firebombed a building mostly occupied by, by Romani families, including children in the Czech Republic. So they've been added to the list. Uh, also, there were three other groups added to the list today. All uh, groups backed by Iran, interestingly enough. Also placed on the list today, three Shia militant groups supported by Iran, the Al-Ashtar Brigades, Harakat al-Sabirin, and the Fatimiyun Division. Uh, so three groups with links to uh, Iran, according to the government. Uh, the Al-Ashtar Brigades aims to overthrow Bahrain's Sunni monarchy. Harakat al-Sabirin is operated in the Gaza Strip since 2014. Uh, the Fatimian Division is fighting in Syria, comprised mainly of Afghan refugees recruited from Iran and Afghanistan. It is directed by Iran's Quds Force, which also, along with Hezbollah, provides support and training. Uh, so you can find that list at the uh, public safety, the Department of Public Safety website, publicsafety.gc.ca. Look, this was a case that clearly resonated with people. And I remember after this video emerged back on January 5th, we had a few days where this topic kept coming up and the phone lines were jammed. Opinion wasn't unanimous on this. There were certainly differences of opinion. But a lot of people felt that this officer should not be an officer, that maybe he should even face criminal charges because of what he did. So again, the situation in Lethbridge, early January in the evening, officers are called to uh, an injured deer, a situation with an injured deer. Uh, The officer concludes that this deer needs to be euthanized, assesses his options. Would it be dangerous to use a firearm with, with people in other vehicles around? The officer says maybe it would. Clubbing the uh, animal to death or slitting its throat, he decided so weren't palatable options either. So he decided to use his vehicle. His thinking, according to this ACER report out today, was that uh, driving over the injured animal would cause devastating injuries and, as a result, instant death. But that didn't happen. It took about 15 minutes for the animal to die. And as evidence in the video that emerged, it it was uh, a very painful death for this deer. The deer lets out just a horrific shriek as it's being run over by the vehicle. It clearly didn't die. And the officer then was forced to run over the animal repeatedly, which made for some horrific visuals. Now, even though, you know, the issue kind of went away, faded from the headlines a little bit, we would still get emails and texts every now and then. People saying, whatever happened with that... Cop in Lethbridge who ran over the deer. Where's that ACERT investigation? So people have been keeping an eye on this. So that ACERT investigation was uh, finally released today. And the conclusion is that the officer should not face any charges. Now, what might rankle the public, I guess, is that if you or I did this, if you or I came across an injured deer and felt this animal needs to be put down, it's, it's suffering needlessly, and we used our vehicle, we would be charged. So is, is it significantly different here, given that the officer was 
in, in his official capacity at the time. Well, joining us for some thoughts on this difficult case, please to welcome the program, Ari Goldkind, criminal defense lawyer and legal commentator. Ari, thanks for making some time for us here. Appreciate this. My pleasure. What a fantastically fan fascinating case that I don't think makes anybody happy, no matter what side of the fence you're no, on. No, exactly. I mean, regardless of how this investigation came back, are there going to be uh, you know people who felt that they got it completely wrong? It's, it's definitely yeah. an unusual case. What, what stands out to you about it? So a few things stand out. First of all, in Ontario, they have what's called the Special Investigations Unit, which is essentially, and they'll never say it out loud, cops investigating cops. Mm -hmm. When you read this very lengthy report, and it is lengthy, and I give the writer credit for it, it's very much what would be called the self-serving report. So that's what jumps out to me with my bias as a criminal defense lawyer. It's almost written with a view to exonerating the police officer, because at every turn, it gives him the very clear benefit of the doubt. Yeah. A couple other things that jump out to me, and this is more for people like me, and I won't speak for people who don't have a pet dog or cat, because I don't understand why anybody wouldn't want to have a wonderful dog in their home. Right. But the thing that jumps out for me is that there was no attempt on this night whatsoever to even call an emergency vet. And that's amazing to me, because I bet you right now your, your uh, board would light up with how many people with their beloved dogs or cats have had an incident at 10, 11, midnight, 1, in a city like Lethbridge. Doesn't matter, Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, Lethbridge. And they run to the emergency vet that's open all night. And here, the writer of this report says, well, that would have been too onerous to do. And maybe they were closed, and maybe they wouldn't have gotten over there that fast. That struck me as a real, real problem in this because what you want to do before you take your car and run over this, you know, very precious creature that the report makes clear to say is wild, I had some difficulty with that. Of course, it's wildlife, but we as humans have to be humane. Yeah. That was a big problem to me. And the second thing that I thought was interesting, and it's really towards the end of the report, I don't know how many people will read to the end. A lot of people, including retired police officers, Rob, and I'm sure you saw this, said, well, why didn't you just use the firearm and put it out of its misery, get people to back away, get people to move out of the area, and use the firearm rather than this horrible way that it was done? Mm -hmm. And what the writer says, and I don't know if you caught this because this just came down, so most people haven't seen it, is the writer says, well... You know, a lot of people who say use your firearm, or to all you retired police officers that say use your firearm, they give an example in my city, just north of where I live in Toronto, where this exact same thing happened, and when they shot the deer to put it out of its misery, it ricocheted and went into a man's skull. Now, that's fine and dandy logic, Rob, if that's something that the police officer knew at the time and said, you know, I know this ricochet thing could turn out very badly, but I just have a real problem, and maybe I'm wrong, I'm not saying I'm right, but I have a real problem with not clearing an area, not getting everybody out of the way, and with an officer's deep experience using that firearm. That being said, does it meet a criminal standard here? Because that's what we're talking about, criminal charges? No, and I have some perverse, and I emphasize, perverse sympathy for the officer because my guess is if he could go back in time and do this differently or be off duty that day or at disney world with his kids my bet is that's where he'd rather be 
Yeah, and, and I, yeah, I would agree with that. I, I, I think it's a difficult kind of situation, too, Ari, and, and maybe this will fall into Lethbridge Police Service or, or other police departments to have their own policy that we sort of have this, you know, either or, where either he's completely exonerated or, you know, now he's, his career is potentially in ruins because he's facing criminal charges. Uh, that, that maybe some kind of internal discipline or some retraining, you know, something in between, I, I think, would make a lot more sense. That's fair. And, you know, when you read the minutiae of the report, and this is something I didn't even know as I first saw this story months ago, you know, he, he missed the deer's vital organs. His excuse was, is I didn't know where my tires were. You know, that's also a bit of an odd statement to me, given the other use of force options. But where he's in the right is some people say, well, you had a knife on you. You had a, uh, a baton, a billy stick. The report is quite right. That if there was video of it cutting the deer's throat, trust me, the outcry for that would be just as great as this. So it really comes down to firearm, theoretically the car. But I, I, I just have this problem in the report that it says, well, the animal wildlife people were 57 minutes away. But there's no attempt to contact them. The emergency vet is only a couple minutes away, theoretically, or a phone call away. Mm-hmm. No attempt to contact. But sometimes, Rob, and I know this will please nobody. Terrible things happen in life. That's part of being alive. Terrible things happen, and we just can't get a criminal charge out of it as egregious as we think it is. And I'm not at all surprised by the ACERT report. It doesn't surprise me. It's very similar to my city. But the idea that this cop would be behind bars or lose his career over this, I think that might have been a bit of a stretch, too. Yeah. Well, we appreciate the input on this, Ari. Thanks for making some time for us here. Thanks, Rob. All right. That's uh, criminal defense attorney, legal commentator, Eric Goldkind, his thoughts on this. Uh, I was interesting at the time, and I remember we spoke with uh, Nigel Calkin, who's a a professor of uh, veterinary anesthesiology at the University of Calgary, uh, made it clear that this is a horrible way to euthanize an animal, that someone should never, ever euthanize an animal by running over it. He said situations in which officers are called to dispatch an injured animal can be very stressful. Responding officers should also be trained in humane ways to euthanize an animal in distress. Said, in my experience working with deer in painful situations, it's incredibly rare that they vocalize, that they cry out, and that deer did a number of times. Says, I found it very difficult to watch. Well, so did a lot of people. I says, I know there's been some talk about how he should have used a service firearm. I'm not sure what they have in Lethbridge, if it's a 9mm or a 40 Smith & Wesson. But either of them at close range would do the job. The bullets they use don't necessarily stay in the animal. I think there would have been a worry about human safety if the bullet had exited, or if the hit wasn't appropriate and ricocheted the bullet. So he's been working with other wildlife management agencies to study a frangible bullet, which would enter the animal's head and then break into fragments instead of leaving the animal's body. But that would still require some training and, and resources on the part of police uh, departments. Now, there's still some question, I guess, about whether he had access to a shotgun or why that wasn't used. And I don't think the ACER report actually addresses that. There would have been uh, less risk of a ricochet, is my understanding, in that kind of a situation. Uh, but the finding is, is pretty clear from ACERT's. Uh, that they seem sympathetic to the situation the officer found himself in the decision that he made and as a result will not face any charges.
You know, in a way, the debate around artificial sweeteners kind of reminds me of the e-cigarette debate. That is it a form of harm reduction in a way that if we're concerned about sugar, we're concerned about calories, uh, but people still want to drink soda, that uh, you make that switch to diet soda, to artificial sweeteners. And then that's maybe a healthier choice. Or do we need to look specifically at diet sodas if they pose their own unique risks or dangers? And so there's a real divide here when it comes to opinion on that. Uh, a lot of people defend uh, artificial sweeteners and diet sodas vigorously. Uh, others think they, they represent a menace in their own way. So what does the evidence tell us? Well, it's an interesting deep dive into the evidence published this week at the National Post. Joining us to talk a bit more about it is the author of the piece. Tamara Housebell is the unearthed columnist, a monthly column in the Washington Post that examines food policy issues. You can read more at WashingtonPost.com. Uh, Tamara joins us on the line here this afternoon. Tamara, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Glad to be here. You know, what stands out, it, it certainly seems like this is a, a divisive issue, at least in terms of food policy, is it? It totally is. And, you know, for reasons that are actually pretty easy to understand, if you look at the fights we're having about food in general, I mean, leave, us, leave aside diet soda for the moment, mm-hmm. but look at what's happened to our food supply. You know, it's turned into something that is dominated by highly processed foods that are specifically designed to be palatable, that people have trouble eating in moderation, and and. It's it's responsible for a lot of what is making us fat and sick. So understandably, there's a great deal of hostility in both the policy community and the nutrition community toward these big companies that have been marketing this stuff all along. So I think it's hard for people to sort of take a step back and say, okay, let's leave all that aside for a minute and just focus on the science of these artificial sweeteners. Right, which which we should. I mean, obviously, our, our, our policy should be evidence-based. And if there's evidence that, that something is, is harmful or potentially harmful, then, then we shouldn't ignore that. But in terms of what it is we're concerned about here, it's interesting because for some people, there's, there's something sinister about artificial sweeteners, that uh, just the fact that they're artificial or they're messing with our, you know, our, our gut bacteria or that it's a, a gateway to, to sugary drinks. I mean, what, what is the, the chief concern or is there one in particular? It depends who you ask. So um, there are uh, people in groups, especially the Center for Science and the Public Interest in Washington, D.C., is very concerned, for example, about the link between some of these artificial sweeteners, particularly sucralose and aspartame, uh, and cancer. Whereas there's another group of people who are less concerned about those links because they think that the evidence is flimsy and they're more concerned about, you know, what happens in your system when there's a disconnect between the sweet taste that you experience when you drink these things or eat something sweetened with, with artificial sweeteners and, you know, your body expecting there to be calories and then not being calories. And does that cause some kind of dysfunction? some kind of derangement. People are very concerned about that. And a third group of people, well, maybe they're often the same people, are worried about what happens to our gut microbiome because, you know, there's lots of research on, in, well, not lots, but 
more research on cancer outcomes, for example. Uh, and when that comes up empty, people start looking for other things. And the gut mi- microbiome is often where people go. It's it's obviously something that we've been talking about a lot lately, and people are very concerned about. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Well, in terms of the cancer issue, and and that's something that goes back all the way to the seventies, uh, yeah, apparently, right? Uh, but but I mean, is is that more conclusive then in terms of there there not being a link? Well, you know, I spent a lot of time on this website. PubMed that has mm-hmm. that it's the repository of all the journals looking at this stuff, and as best I can tell, um, no, there's not a good link to cancer. And of course, there there are two ways you can try and suss this out. The first way is by looking at animal studies, and you know it's almost always possible to give mice enough of something so that they get cancer. Mm-hmm. So you you sort of have to look at these pretty carefully, and and. And then even if it causes mice, if it causes cancer in mice, the question of whether that means it causes cancer in humans is a completely different question. But then the other way people do it is to look at these big studies that track all kinds of people and ask them periodically what they eat. And if you do that, then you find that consumption of diet soda and, con- and consumption of artificial sweeteners in general basically correlates with everything bad. It correlates with obesity. It correlates with heart disease. It correlates with diabetes. Um, it correlates with all kinds of other bad eating habits. And that's the key. That's what makes it so difficult to suss out. Okay, if there's a higher incidence of cancer in diet soda drinkers, is it the diet soda or is it, you know, the bacon or the lack of exercise or the higher weight? It's very hard to tell. And then you also have this issue in that observational data world of what they call reverse causality. So is the the diet soda causing the obesity or are people who are concerned about their weight, who are overweight or obese already, turning to diet soda in an effort to control that? And because when we actually do control trials, we, by we, I mean researchers, when they, when they do control trials, they actually found that diet soda has, you know, moderate uh, good outcomes as far as, as weight. It's certainly not a panacea, but in general, people who get diet soda instead of full sugar soda or artificially sweetened stuff instead of full sugar stuff consume fewer calories and do tend to lose a little more weight. Interesting. In terms of the, the, the gut bacteria question, I guess it's still an area where we're, we're still learning a lot about it, aren't we, in terms of you know whether you can mess with this bacteria, what it takes to mess with this bacteria, what happens when we do. Uh, and there is a concern maybe that, that these artificial sweeteners might be doing that. So what does the evidence tell us on that question? You're right. It's like it's the, it, it's the health concern du jour. People yeah. are, are very focused on it. But there, there are a couple things to remember about artificial sweeteners. And the first is that you know, we sort of get the wrong impression of how much of them we're consuming because, you know, you look at a packet of it and you think, oh, you know, this is, a, a, you can hold it in your hand, it's a teaspoon. But most of that is just filler and the actual artificial sweetener is very, very small. So if you look at, um, you know, sucralose, for example, which is the ingredient in Splenda, if you ate what the FDA says is the acceptable daily intake, which they determine by trying to figure out what's safe for humans and then dividing it by a hundred. So this is one one hundredth of what the best evidence says, you know, is a safe level. That's a third a 
of a gram of the stuff, which is, um, it would be about a third of a quarter teaspoon if we were measuring sugar. So it's a very, very small amount. And now, think about all the other things you eat that contribute to your gut bacteria. And while it's not impossible that these things are so potent that they'll disrupt your gut bacteria at these low, low levels, think about what people are trying to do with probiotics, Mm -hmm. where they find things that absolutely affect bacteria, and they make you eat huge amounts of it, and they usually come up empty anyway, because the gut bacteria is a very difficult thing to move. And I think that the idea that very, very small amounts of something are going to disrupt a human gut are 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 kind of unlikely. Not out of the question, but unlikely. It's way easier to disrupt a mouse's gut. It's interesting. You put in perspective how tiny these amounts are, which obviously is, is the appeal of these artificial sweeteners, that you can get the sweetness from such a tiny amount. But that, that acceptable daily intake, you would need about, what, 28 packs of, of Splenda to, to get to right. that level, That's- right? Yeah, we're talking about a lot of artificial sweeteners. And the other thing about it is that if you drink diet soda, um, usually they're a mix of different sweeteners. So you're not getting them uh, all from one, which means you're distributing the risk. And, And so, you know, all in all, I think nobody can say, no, of course these things are safe. Of course they're risk free. And nobody does say that. They just say that. It's unlikely that these things are going to pose a serious health risk, but you know what does pose a serious health risk? Being overweight. And, and, you know, this is a problem that so many people are struggling with, me included. I find my way every day. And, you know, to take away a tool that could possibly help um, what is arguably our most pressing public health problem seems to me to be the wrong way to go. Well, and, and that cuts to, to another part of this debate. I, I, don't know if it, I don't know if moralistic is the right way to describe it, but there, there are certainly those who believe that we need to get away from, from these sweetened beverages. We know about uh, sugar. We know about the, uh, you know, the risks uh, of these kinds of empty calories. So some see uh, diet sodas as, as kind of a, a move away from that. Others see it as sort of a gateway back into sugary drinks. Does, does the evidence right. tell us either way? It, well, I think it's not really an evidence based sort of question what you said early was that it was you know sort of a moralistic issue and mm-hmm. and if you if you spend time in the nutrition community which i've been doing for 20 years you find that people in that community often they it's not that they don't just want you to not drink soda either kind they don't want you to want to drink soda that's the sign of you know uh uh unsophisticated taste, a lack of appreciation for, you know, the mm-hmm. subtleties of iced tea. Right. You know, it, it's, it's something that is frowned upon, not just for its chemical composition, but for what it says about you. And I reject that. I think it's puritanical. I think it's holier than thou. I think it's condescending. People like soda. I like soda. And I think we have to sort of move forward understanding that that's the case and try and help people work it into their diets in a reasonable and moderate way. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Well, it's a fascinating piece. It's the latest unearthed column. Folks can find it at WashingtonPost.com. Tamar, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate the conversation. Thanks, Rob. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. That's Tamar Haspel, food and science journalist, writes the unearthed column for the Washington Post of WashingtonPost.com. So an interesting look at the evidence and the debate around diet sodas. 
Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.